we've seen a lot of LGBTQ folks, especially young folks, really struggling with not having a safe and supportive environment to be themselves and to live authentically and to feeling like they don't have access to that authentic self right now because of this much more restrictive world that we're living in under uh, the height of this virus. The truth is we haven't come up with a great solution for how to reach those folks who might be technologically disconnected right now. There's a deep concern for me for the youngers. I know they're doing a lot of code switching. I know that they are at home in protective mode. My brain remains curious to figure out how to support those littles and how to get information to them. Once you see how powerful and how persuasive, how justice-minded young people are and can be, particularly around LGBTQ issues, you can't unsee that. You want to join them. You want to follow it. It's an enthusiastic kind of group. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. Today's episode is a deep dive and well worth your time, given the important insights you'll gain from three awesome advocates for Arizona's LGBTQ communities. Fair warning, this episode clocks in as one of our longer ones. That's because so many of us have a long way to go in terms of learning how to interpersonally and systemically support LGBTQ well-being. Arizona cannot lay claim to being a vibrant state without embracing and learning from its most vulnerable communities, communities that hold the keys for forward leaps in health and well-being for all Arizonans. You'll meet our guests in just a moment, but first, your weekly reminder, don't stop being smart when it comes to COVID-19. Stay at home as much as you possibly can, wash up, mask up, maintain social distancing, and keep a heads up for your fellow Arizonans. We need to be in this together to get out of this together. Here's one more piece of advice. Treat this long listen as a sort of two-part episode packaged together. In part one, we build understanding of what LGBTQ communities face on a daily basis with the added effects of COVID. In part two, we'll go more in depth regarding root causes and needed systems change. Plus, we've got a terrific lightning round and a new segment called Once You See It, You Can't Unsee It. So let's get to it. It's time to talk about safety, inclusion, supportive environments, oppression, dominant culture, capacity and training, policies, systems, and much more. More concisely, it's time to talk about LGBTQ communities, Arizona, and COVID-19. Today, we have three tremendous people here to talk to us about the LGBTQ community and COVID-19. First off, Tina Howard, who leads up operations with Corey Press Institute. Tina, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Next, we have Maddie Edelman, co-founder and dedicated leader from the Phoenix chapter of GLSEN. Maddie, how are you? I'm great. So really appreciative to be here with you all. Thank you for being here. Last but not least, the man who brought us all together, Michael Soto, the executive director of Equality Arizona. Michael, how are you? I'm great today, John. Thanks for having us. Thank you for being here. Tina, let's start with you. What is Corey Press Institute? Corey Press is a feminist press. It is one of the oldest independent presses in the U.S. It's been around for about 27 years, focused on creating space, elevating the voices of the most marginalized in several different ways. So we obviously have paper books, books that you can purchase and read, but we have a lot of other events as well. We have a program called Notes from the Motherfield, which is a live storytelling event where folks tell their 
experience in mothering. Thanks to the generosity of the Vitalist Foundation, we're working on something called the Gender Diversity Initiative, which grew out of a youth program. We learned a lot of really amazing things from the youth, but one thing that we really heard from them was that youth were not really well provided for emotionally in terms of the place where they spent a bulk of their time, which was their schools, that many of those facilities simply didn't have the capacity to support them when they had really specific questions. Part of that was about supporting the sex education curriculum that was coming down the pike. So that was a piece of it, but we realized that sex education isn't the be-all, end-all, that sometimes kids just have questions that they aren't able to ask at home and that their peers might not have a full breadth of emotion or context about. So partly what we would like to do is find a means It's a little different now with COVID to get information to a core group of educators and staff to help those youth who don't have a place at home to get questions answered or maybe don't have access to some of the peer-led conversations. So that's another thing we're doing. We deal in words (laughs) of all sorts and information. Maddie, introduce us to Glisten, if you would. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am with Glisten Phoenix. We're a local chapter of a national education organization. And I'm really moved by some of the work that you're doing as a professor, as a researcher, as a writer myself. I, I really do appreciate how you're centering text and stories and sharing people's insights from the grassroots. So thanks for the work that you're doing. The work that you're doing around gender diversity education or programming in schools or around schools relates very directly to the work that GLSEN does, which is to create LGBTQ-inclusive K-12 schools. And this is beyond the kind of tolerance talk that some people are attracted to or are comfortable with. We're really looking about transforming the culture, the policies, the expectations that people have about what they're going to find and who they can be when they walk into a school from the moment they do as a kindergartner. And as someone who had really, really positive experiences as a student and now as an educator, I'm all in. I've been doing Glifton work since about 2002 here in Phoenix, and we're finding more and more people who desire the information and the confidence that we know that we can offer to educators and students and administrators and staff and parents in the larger school community to help ensure that everyone gets to be who they ought to be in school. Another reason I'm committed to working in schools and around schools is because it may be an old-fashioned concept these days, but I do see schools as our public square. It's the place where we meet other people, literally and figuratively. So the work that we're doing at GLSEN enables people to meet other people in a way that's effective and healthy and affirming. And so our goal of creating safe, respectful, affirming K-12 schools helps that public square transform as well. Because we know, better than most, schools are built on and continue to reproduce inequalities. Even how we fund our schools is built on inequalities in terms of zip code-based funding. Glisten is interested in transforming schools to a place where everyone has access to a well-funded, respectful, and affirming place where 
they can pursue justice and also find it in the corners of their schools. And we do this in three different ways. One is through student leadership. We do follow students. As you noted, students have questions, but they also have answers. And so we have a lot of student-led work being done, primarily funneled through what are now called gender sexuality alliances, student clubs. They used to be called gay-straight alliances. We do work with educators and staff administrators through professional development. So delivering workshops, answering questions, sharing best practices, having people run questions by us if they have them. And third, we do policy advocacy. So we're looking at making sure that local school policies and practices, the district policy and practices, the state legislature, the federal legislature, and implementation of any kinds of judicial decisions or new laws come down the pike. So the work is great. (laughs) It is very, very large mission, but we are laser focused in terms of needing to know what works. All of our work is evidence-based. We're very, very research-driven, and so we're confident and know that what we're driving our volunteers to do is going to work. And so I'm really, really excited to do that kind of efficient and meaningful and fun kind of work together within our own organization, but also with established partners like Equality Arizona and hopefully new partners like Corey Press. Michael, you know, you're the one who actually probably needs no introduction, but hasn't had a chance to introduce (laughs) Equality Arizona. So tell us about the work of Equality Arizona and how it ties into the work we were just talking about. Happy to. I'm Michael Soto. I'm the executive director of Equality Arizona. And Equality Arizona is the statewide organization that works to build the political power of LGBTQ Arizonans. And that's our main focus. We do that through many different avenues. Sometimes that's through rights-based advocacy work, right? So you see us at city halls, at the state legislature, sometimes even in Congress when we can travel, (laughs) uh, (laughs) advocating for policy at different levels. But you also see us working for cultural change and working for overall the health, safety, and general well-being of our community in many different ways. And a lot of that has to do with incredible partners like Glisten and Corey Press, really working both at the policy level and at that cultural change level to make Arizona a state where LGBTQ people can not just survive, but thrive, where we have access to full rights, dignity, respect, and access to everything that cisgender and heterosexual people have. In terms of education, we agree with Maddie that it's the public square today, and it is such a key part of ensuring that not only in the near future, but in the long-term future, Arizona is a place where LGBTQ people can live, can lead full lives with access to full human dignity. That education forum is such a critical piece of that and ensuring that today's youth, when they're making policy, when they're sitting at the state legislature or in Congress or in city councils, it's not even a question to them that they would support a wide range of policy that makes sure that people of all walks of life, whether that's LGBTQ people or Black folks, Indigenous folks, Latinx people, disabled folks, all have the same access to life, the same access to pursuing what will make our state healthy 
as well as what will give each person the ability to sort of fulfill their purpose in life, to lead a happy, healthy life, to form families of their choosing, um, and to participate in community. And so for us, this work is absolutely critical. We work a lot with Glisten on the policy level. They're a key partner for us. This sex education work, repealing no promo homo, um, as well as defending against the trans athlete law that was seeking to ban trans athletes this last session. Glisten was absolutely just a critical partner for us in that. I mean, Corey Press, we've been excited to work with you all on helping to create and support the imagination through the work that you all do in changing culture as a feminist press that's dedicated to expanding ideas of gender and understanding what that means for kids today as well as adults today and what that could mean for the future. We think that that's really critical work. We're excited to continue that work with you all. Education is going to look a lot different this year, certainly because of COVID, but we're in it to support students, parents, and teachers and administrators to make sure that LGBTQ students are still getting access to that sense of community. That's a really key thing, I think, especially for K through 12 kids today, having access to some sort of community throughout the school year and the COVID crisis, as well as continuing to fight for a more inclusive Arizona where every student can go to school, be safe no matter what, and get the education they deserve. There are bound to be some listeners out there who might actually need the answer to the question, why aren't our schools affirming spaces for LGBTQ attendees? Maddie, what's your answer to that? Sure. How do we know what we know is a question. And for decades, no one was doing the research. It was too controversial to even ask the questions on a survey, the demographic questions for people to self-identify their gender identity or their sexual orientation. Where GLSEN came in about 20 years ago, we began the GLSEN National School Climate Survey. And I would argue that pretty much any time you're going to hear about young people's experiences in school, they're going to be quoting whether they know it or not from the GLSEN National School Climate Survey. There have been others who've now contributed to that literature, and that's fantastic. But the GLSEN National School Climate Survey really is the foundation of what we do know about LGBTQ student experiences in schools. And what they tell us is really concerning. What we're hearing from young people is that they feel unsafe at school. I'm going to say this in two different ways. They feel unsafe at school because of their sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression, or their race or ethnicity. But the more accurate way of saying that is they feel unsafe at school because of the level of homophobia, transphobia, and racism. And I think it's important for us to start using that language. It's not because of the person that they feel unsafe. It's because of society's norms, the lack of legal protection, the lack of intervention at school when they are experiencing and being targeted by people who are using racist, homophobic, and or transphobic kinds of verbal harassment, physical harassment, or assault. I can add a few numbers to that to try to elaborate on the kind of experience people are having. And in particular, I can elaborate on the kind of experiences that our LGBTQ students of color are having. Some of these numbers are really similar to the more general population of LGBTQ students, but others are more pronounced. These are national statistics. We'll have our Arizona State report within next six months. Our Indigenous and Native students are experiencing homophobia at a very, very high rate. They feel unsafe at school. 65% of our Native and Indigenous students across this country say, I don't feel safe at school because of anti-lesbian, gay, or bisexual behavior. Almost 20% of them say that they experience racism at school, and that's why they don't feel safe. If we look at Latinx or Asian American Pacific Islander 
or Black students, their experiences of anti-gay climate or behavior is a little bit less than the Native and Indigenous students, but it's still over half, over half of our LGBT students who identify as Black, Asian American, Pacific Islander, or Latinx um, don't feel safe at school because of homophobia. And the result of this kind of, I'll call it an anti-LGBTQ school climate, is that students are missing school. So in general, an anti-LGBTQ school climate means that students are hearing remarks, they're having physical behavior aimed at them in a negative way. And this kind of climate affects their educational experience and their personal health and well-being. So when you're missing school on a regular basis because you don't feel safe or you're avoiding specific spaces, whether it's gym class or a particular hallway or a particular teacher, that means that you are not getting the kind of learning experience that you deserve, as Michael was saying. We have a really unacceptable level of anti-LGBTQ behavior, bias-based behavior at school. And because of it, we know that students don't feel safe. They're not going to school at the kind of level that you would expect them to do so. It means that they actually want to continue with their education after high school at a lower rate than students who have lower levels of victimization at school. I take that personally as a professor. The students who are in K-12 schools who have a really negative experience there why would you want to continue with your education necessarily if there's going to be more of the same? We also have students who don't have that sense of belonging, that have lower levels of self-esteem, that have higher levels of depression, that have other kinds of mental health concerns. Their kind of emotional and physical well-being disparities can be tied to their anti-LGBTQ school experiences, which is nested itself within a larger context. Our culture, our society, our state still lacks legal protections. We still have a significant, call it high volume, in terms of sound, of people who are expressing anti-LGBTQ concerns on a regular basis. So you really can't be surprised that this is their experience in school. Maybe some people are surprised that this kind of harassment has such dire outcomes for LGBTQ students, whether they're Black students or other students of color, but they do. It's, and for some of these students, it is actually lifelong. The picture I'm drawing here is of the very negative experiences that LGBTQ students are experiencing in school. That is not the experience of every single student. So I want to make sure that the brush we're using to paint here, the kind of experiences that students have, is not an overly totalizing one, that there's a continuum of experiences. And unfortunately, too many students are having very negative experiences. And of course, because they're having very negative experiences, they have more consequences, deeper consequences, more long-lasting consequences to their health and their education. Some students might come from a very affirming home and have an affirming homeroom teacher, might have a science teacher who respects them, and they might have a coach who welcomes them on their team. Those things could line up in an ideal world, and for some students it does. But we do need to work with the most vulnerable, the most impacted by anti-LGBTQ racism, poverty. And, and when we take care of those most vulnerable, most marginalized students, we know that the rest of the students will also get what they need. Tina, Maddie just shared the numbers. Talk to us from the experience perspective, the stories that are told that you are able to work with at Corey Press. 
I really appreciate those statistics because from an anecdotal perspective, we support that finding as well. The youth who shared their stories said that same thing, that not only about their own safety and well-being as a member of the LGBT community, but also they noticed that their friends who might be of color, that their friends who were Black, that their friends who were Indigenous were getting it twice as much. The lack of safety of their friends weighed heavier on them than their own safety, which is heartbreaking. Not one of the youth who attended this summit expressed their concern for themselves, which I think is really powerful. Their concern was for others in their community. They felt they could take care of themselves, but they were worried for the others. And I think that that is an also a really magnificent source of stress for being in a classroom. So we know a little bit about brain development, and we know that when we have those stressors, when our brain feels that it is unsafe to be in a particular place, that we aren't using our prefrontal cortex to respond and to take in information. So even the students who felt that they were able to stay in the classroom and maybe even take the risk of speaking up for that friend who was being harassed or bothered, we know that they still were not getting a full academic experience. They were still not able to get as much as they could from being in that classroom because of the stressors. They were bringing that stress home with them. The responses that were occurring in the classroom were something that they carried out into the world with them. That stress stayed in their bodies and in their experiences. I really do appreciate all of that data. It was what I suspected. I knew it was more than half, and it's good to have these perspectives. The one other thing that I would highlight, the first time these youth experienced it was in primary education. We're talking really young, second, third, fourth grade. Their classmates had language that was extraordinary, and it is based in white supremacy and heterosexual normativity, and that stuff flew off of those little tongues without a pause. Those words had been a part of their vernacular and a part of what they'd heard long enough for them to be able to say those things in context and really have an incredible impact on very young children, seven, eight, and nine. They were saying the first time they'd been called those words. And we don't need to repeat those words because everybody already heard them in their head the second I said it. We know what the words are. They haven't really progressed. No one's more creative. It's still those same words for decades. I was personally shocked to hear that a seven-year-old had been identified as some of those things. And then I took a look at my own educational experience and I realized I'd heard those two. That was a while ago. Of course, I grew up in a small town in Iowa. It was very, very clear to me from numerous perspectives that they were aware of what I was and I wasn't to talk about it. And that was from teachers. That was from, even if a friend got wind of it, it was sort of like, you save that. So what happened to me academically was that I got mad and I did well um, because I suspected that that was my way out. And indeed, that's what happened. I just left and did the rest of my living in New York City in the mid 80s. So we'll leave it there. But that's the only way I thought I could survive was to just leave it. And I don't want, kids to feel that they can't stay where they are, where they're from, and to have a bigger life than what they're having now, a safer, more inclusive life. Michael, the dominant culture that Tina is describing, that was her experience and also plays out of the numbers, 
that obviously tends to manifest itself quite completely at the policy level, the systems level, and with the environments that we are all living in. From Equality Arizona's perspective, where do you start and what do you do? Oh, gosh. Our answer is that you start in multiple ways. Um, and part of that is that's why partnership is so important, is that there isn't just one way to fix these really big problems or to attack the roots of them. And so we have to be doing that through research and data. We have to be doing that through policy change. We have to be doing that through changing the cultural expectations of, in this case, of what the school day looks like, what a successful student looks like, right? What funding for schools looks like, what expectations there are for administrators and teachers and parents to learn about the diversity of the actual student population today and to be respectful towards that and to be able to have meaningful interaction that doesn't bring our adult prejudices and biases to those students or to the learning environment. It's all of those things. It's making sure that narratives are being shared and collected and supported through the work that Corey Press is doing. Listen, I know you're doing narrative work. EQAZ does our own narrative work. We're getting a diversity of stories out there of what it means to be a student today, what it means to be a teacher today, what it means to be LGBTQ and in the school environment at whatever level. It means, you know, working to get people like Kathy Hoffman elected to office and staying in office. You know, Kathy Hoffman is the first superintendent of public instruction in at least my political career here in Arizona and my memory that is supportive of LGBTQ people, both students, teachers, and administrators, and folks working for the Arizona Department of Education in general. Um, she is open about her support. She's an active advocate. She also understands that equality for LGBTQ people is also deeply related to racial equality and gender equality and other forms of working for a more just society. And so, you know, it's all of these things and it's challenging work because we have to work in so many different avenues and it's a back and forth. Often policy and political change is impossible if you haven't done the cultural change, but also sometimes the cultural change requires the policy change. And so we're sort of constantly juggling these. How do we continue to make visible the cultural change that's already happening? Kids are changing language constantly. We're always learning mm -hmm. <laughs> from students and from our partners, our partner organizations, what new terminology is coming out, how young people are changing the way that they identify and understand themselves within these big umbrellas of sexual orientation and gender identity so that we can be good advocates for them, so that we can be responsible to that community of people, as well as continuing to push forward and put forth the best policy possible today and make sure that we're being as thoughtful as possible, not leaving out groups of people. That's a really key part of what we do is that we're fighting for this really big group of LGBTQ plus people, which means that we're always fighting for all of those people. And so we don't leave anyone behind in the policy that we fight for. So making sure that it's fully inclusive of the community and doing that at the, the city level, at the county level, at school boards, at the state level and in Congress and doing kind of all of that work simultaneously. <laughs> It's a lot to tackle, but we've seen an enormous amount of change in a very short amount of time, even just thinking of early 90s to now, the way that the LGBTQ community is seen, talked about, represented, and the rights that we have access to have shifted dramatically. There's still a great deal of work to do. We still need formal protections in every aspect of life. Um, we're still fighting for non-discrimination policy statewide in Arizona and for the Equality Act on the federal level. Our hope is then that that 
affects everything from housing to the school environment to explicit protections in employment to access to credit and banking. It affects everything. So doing that work, as well as making sure that our community is actually represented in elected office. A key part of what we're doing these days, especially as we lead up to the primary next week and to the general election in November, is making sure that we're fighting for LGBTQ candidates and for candidates that have taken very public unapologetic positions in being willing to govern respectfully and responsibly for the LGBTQ people. It's a lot of different strategies. <laughs> Michael and Tina, I'm really curious. One of these policy pieces, which has emerged over time, is that of the meaning of safety and the role of school resource officers. So I know at a recent board meeting, Glisten Phoenix board members went around the virtual room and we were defining and sharing with each other what, is, what does safety mean to each of us and how it varies. And I know in a post 9-11 world, school resource officers were infused across the country in our schools and they became for some people a sign of safety, but they became an actual experience of threat and harm for lots of others. I know at Glisten we've spent a lot of time trying to educate SROs about how to be LGBTQ inclusive. And that's great work and we'll have to keep doing it because they're not leaving anytime soon. But we're also now being pushed primarily by Black-led and Latinx-led and Native-led organizations to say, hey, that's not enough. It's not sufficient. We really have to say that we're seeing disproportionate disciplinary actions against our students of color. And we're seeing the school to prison pipeline being pumped up by the role, by the existence, the presence of SROs in schools. So I know that we're seeing that here in Phoenix. I'm wondering how that shift may be occurring or maybe it already occurred in your other spaces and what kinds of insights you might be able to offer either us or listeners to this podcast. I hold some of the same concerns that the BIPOC leaders have. I understand that after 9-11, there were decisions made. I believe they were made out of legitimate and actual concern for the safety of youth. But I do feel that in a lot of places and in a lot of spaces, that has shifted. And I feel that it has become an additional layer of control over bodies and movement and attitudes. And I have observed as your statistics will uphold that it is generally youth of color, youth who are in one way or another stepping outside of the norm, whether it's their appearance. And, and even if they're not queer youth, it may be some non-traditional way of dressing or an alliance with a certain musical or sport or whatever it might be. We have to address more than just training for them. I think that Training is effective if we have a willing trainee, but if we do not, that implicit bias, that information that they've been carrying around with them about what challenging or bad youth or whatever can be a powerful force in their actions. And that I have felt was a little bit difficult to supersede. After the youth symposium that we did, we did some work with teachers and administrators and support staff. It was about 50 folks. And so we addressed white supremacy in education and how that trickles down to treating all of those others. And there was some pushback and there was a lot of misinformation regarding who does the naughty stuff, right? Who does the bad stuff? And all of that sounded really similar to me when I hear people talk about crime. So it was some of that same justification. Well, 
those kids are in trouble more because those kids fill in the blank. Those folks get arrested more because those folks fill in the blank. So I believe in training. I, I believe that that's a really powerful way to reach people, assuming they come with the interest, investment, and capacity to take in that information. So that's my concern is what do we do about the folks without that capacity? Such an important question. For Equality Arizona, we really, safety isn't punishment and control. Those things are about exerting power over people and getting them to bend to authority. <laughs> and, and that's not safety. Safety is agency. It's self-determination. It's the ability to make choices about your life that are best for your life, according to you, <laughs> and to what is your most whole self and purpose in life. And adults and children deserve that. Everybody deserves that kind of safety to make choices about their own life. And for us, school resource officers, I understand the good intentions, whether that was after 9-11 or in the 1950s when the very first school resource officers started popping up in this country. What it's done is it exposed children to people who are not trained to be educators, are not trained to work with children, and are actually trained in this control and punishment paradigm, which is not helpful in the school environment and not helpful for young people testing the world around them as a learning process, as we all did, right? <laughs> um, testing themselves and others, because that's how we learn as humans. Um, and so we're actually deeply committed to defunding SROs all SROs in Arizona schools. We don't think there's any place for them that is positive for students. And we think that counselors, social workers, and trained educators who are actually trained to work with children are far more equipped to create a safe school environment for children to be able to test out being autonomous little humans and making safe choices within the boundaries of the learning environment. That's what school's for. And SROs just are not compatible with that. They disproportionately cause harm to BIPOC students, to gender variant students, to non-binary and students who are not performing gender normatively, and also to women and girls. We know that policing as it exists today is deeply dangerous to women and girls and often results in an enormous amount of sexual assault and sexual violence. And none of that needs to happen in Arizona schools or any school. Training is always good for people, like Tina said, that are willing and like Maddie acknowledged, right? People that are willing to be trained and engaged in that. But as a safety measure, we deeply believe that SROs, all police officers need to be out of schools as much as possible. And we need to limit the interaction of law enforcement with students as much as humanly possible. And so that should be limited to emergencies when first responders are actually appropriate and necessary for the environment. Because it's inclusion, it's seeing yourself in your curriculum. It's being seen by the parents, by the teachers and by the administrators as a person, a student worthy of success, whatever that looks like for you. That's what makes successful students. Having access to opportunity and having access to basic respect as a young person, that's what makes people feel included and safe in the school day. Okay, I have a riddle. I'm going to ask you each to respond to this riddle, starting with Maddie. Ideally, in the heart of every teacher and administrator, both in their job description and actually in their hearts, they should want nothing more than for all students to succeed. So what is it that is standing in the way of that intention from being manifested on a daily basis? 
in our professional development workshops, we actually ask teachers what their goals are as educators. We say, as educators, it is my responsibility to help students fill in the blank. And they tell us so many things. And I usually say something like, oh my gosh, you have set yourselves up for success, but also you're making me tired just listening to everything that you're trying to accomplish in the school day, every day showing up really early in the school day. (laughs) So we know what teachers want for and with their students. And typically what I feel myself and what I feel from others is two things, fear and lack of backup. And by that, I mean, I'll start with the lack of backup. Teachers may not understand what the parameters are, what they're allowed to do and say in schools. And so if their principles or the policies that they have are not giving them the proper awareness of their policies or are not willing to back them up when they do the right thing with their students, teachers and other educators, I think anyone who works in a school building as an educator, will be hesitant to intervene, for example, when there's anti-LGBTQ behavior going on, because they're a little unsure what that means for them. Will they be disciplined? Will they be stigmatized as belonging potentially to that community? So one is lack of backup. And the second piece is evident there is fear, that there's an unfortunate amount of fear that adults experience because teaching is a relatively conservative profession. There's so little that teachers are taught about in terms of LGBTQ content. We try to offer content expertise to them. They are so wanting to understand, but our teacher preparation programs and even the professional associations don't necessarily have the capacity to offer them the content expertise they need, which is at the bottom line is permission to do what they already know is the right thing to do with and for their students. Michael, same question to you. What is it that is standing in the way of that intention from being manifested on a daily basis? Such a great question. And I think the answer is that oppression isn't the shark, it's the water. And so what that means is that as adults, we want students to succeed, but according to the biases and prejudices that we were conditioned by. And unfortunately, that often means we want students to succeed within a context of white supremacy, within a context of patriarchy and heteronormativity. And so sadly, I think that means that for lots of the reasons that Maddie was pointing out, for fear, for just a lack of knowledge about these things, for lack of understanding our own connections to these systems of oppression. As adults, we're really not well equipped (laughs) to help students succeed, especially when we see young people always pushing against the norms that our biases and prejudices as adults are created in. It's very complicated because we can have so many teachers, administrators, and education professionals have such wonderful intentions, but I do think we're set up for failure because we live in a society and largely we're conditioned to not look at that, to not look at the water, to not pay attention to it and try to understand the ways that systems of oppression have literally shaped our understanding of the world and how we see what is valuable, what success is, what is good, even those things that good and bad even exist. Right? <laughs> um, and so that makes it hard. Such a great point. And I would imagine that there are even teachers out there who at times believe their intentions are good in trying to help individuals fit into that dominant water. Absolutely. And yet that has an even more negative effect. Tina, same question to you. These were great answers. I really feel all of that. The thing that I would add, two things. The first is simply implicit bias. I'm not always sure 
that folks really understand what's happening in them. Maybe if a kid says, I think I'm gay. What I have heard is that teachers will say, well, that will be a hard life. And just try to brush that off. Well, because I might be saying something different. And this is the fear piece, right? Different than their parents would believe or different than my administration might support. So maybe I'll just try to pass it off, change the subject, dismiss it. But I think the second thing is teachers often don't have the time to authentically address any issue, right? Mm -hmm. If you have 28 students in a class and you have some children with big behaviors and maybe you don't have the support, do you have time to authentically answer that question or address that child who approaches you with this? And that's one thing we talked about at CORE is how do you make that kind of space for a teacher? Is it even reasonable to assume that one adult with that level of responsibility can authentically answer it? After all, it took me decades to understand it. How will she tell the eight-year-old in a six-minute conversation? I want to find a way to answer that. I want to be able to help them come up with solutions or make an appointment with that student to talk about it later. But it does seem like a big ask for teachers who are already so tasked. Their list is long. That resonated with me when you said that, that fear of getting it wrong, or maybe I don't know, or maybe I don't have that language because it is changing and it is an evolution and I love it. And I'm proud of that work that is happening with linguistics. I avoid certain topics with my own children because maybe I don't have the language about that. Maybe I don't understand where we are today on a particular subject matter. I know that teachers aren't really at liberty to do that with each student. So that is a thing I'm curious about and interested in addressing. How do we make that space, right? If we are asking them to do this work, how do we support them in finding that time to address that youth. Remind everyone that we have to trust youth, and that's a big piece of it too, is that sometimes people don't, and they're like, well, they're doing that for attention, or they have all of those quips to sort of dismiss what that youth is telling you, and the incredible courage it takes to be that youth, saying those words out loud. I don't know how anyone does it. Believe kids and help teachers, I don't know. What has transpired in this community as a result of COVID-19, and how do we think about the ways to be more adaptive and supportive of LGBTQ plus individuals? Michael? Such a big question again. COVID has deeply changed the way that our lives look across the board <laughs> in every aspect of life, from school to work, to just how we spend our leisure time, to even our relationships with our closest friends and family. And so this has had a huge impact on LGBTQ people, of course, because LGBTQ folks are not valued as a, a group by society. Um, there has been no real research or attempt to quantify the impact of COVID on LGBTQ people. And so we're trying to do that as Arizona statewide organization. We're trying to collect that information from LGBTQ people, asking people have had access to medical care that they need. And we immediately started a program that if folks were trying to go to the hospital or trying to see a doctor and being discriminated against because they were LGBTQ, that we would either send an advocate or be an advocate virtually to help folks. 
Of course, we're only seeing a small fraction of those cases, people that have access to us and to the knowledge that someone is there to advocate with them and for them. It's changed community radically from we've been a virtual organization since March. And so we've been doing a whole lot of work virtually, which has been great in some ways because we've been able to actually get even more people involved because there are not physical barriers to attendance. And so working parents, folks who are disabled, folks in rural places, lots of different people, lots of different kinds of people have been able to attend the virtual town halls and the different kinds of community building and work we're doing online. But that also is still just online. And at the end of the day, we're still home in our homes. And sometimes that means we're home with unsupportive family or in an unsafe environment with other people. And so we've seen a lot of LGBTQ folks, especially young folks, really struggling with not having a safe and supportive environment to be themselves and to live authentically and to feeling like they don't have access to that authentic self right now because of this much more restrictive world that we're living in under uh, the height of this virus. And so we've seen this impact in so many ways, let alone with schools literally (laughs) having to shut down. I'm thinking about a student who attended Virtual Pride, which was a grassroots initiative here in Phoenix that is still ongoing. It wasn't just taking place during Pride Month. I think it has a third Saturday virtual event. And Glisten has participated in many of them, including Virtual Pride. And one of the students who attended Virtual Pride told one of our volunteer leaders that it was the first Pride that they were able to attend because their parents wouldn't allow them to go to the in-person Pride, which is not a new story. Probably we can share our own stories and other people's stories of sneaking into Pride because parents maybe thought they were at the library. But this student took advantage of the opportunity that the virtual environment gave them. So that's one silver lining, a COVID silver lining, which I'm really striving to find. On the other hand, as Michael was saying, we have more students really who feel so socially isolated, are enduring abuse and neglect, discrimination at home, and We'll add this to the kind of digital divide that already exists. And LGBTQ people come from every single community, which means that there are impoverished LGBTQ people. There's child hunger among LGBTQ students that has been exacerbated by the closing of the physical schools. I know schools are doing their darndest to get that food out, but that can require transportation, et cetera. So the digital divide, child hunger, the lack of special education services, again, impacts LGBTQ students. It also means that LGBTQ students may be living in households. There are more LGBTQ families of color, according to some of our data. And we know that people of color are on the front lines. They're deemed essential workers more often than than white workers are. And so the living conditions that students are in are also more tenuous and more vulnerable to the virus itself and illness. So the barriers, the troubles that COVID has presented are multifaceted and are exacerbated by the existence of anti-LGBTQ bias in the home. People's gender expression can be awfully constrained. Um, There are some students who change their clothes when they get to school because they're not allowed to wear the clothes that fit who they are. And so that can happen when you're learning at home, right? So there's all different kinds of things. One other piece that we've learned from students, of course, is that technology is being used and technology is kind of a blunt instrument. So if your official name in the school transcript is being flashed on the screen in a Zoom or other kind of virtual environment, that may not be the name that you have trained your teachers to call you. And so you're being outed potentially and also 
you're being what's called dead named, right? The name that no longer is who you are is being used and it, it can be extraordinarily harmful for people. So all different kinds of barriers have come up with COVID that maybe people didn't initially think of. Tina, your thoughts? I would echo a lot of those things. What can we do to help? Obviously, we're not going into a third grade class and helping that teacher directly, and we're not going to be able to do those things. If I'm being completely honest, we came up short. We do have a wonderful program called Teen Takeover. A couple of teens take over our Instagram every other Saturday. Full disclosure, one of those youth is my very own child. That has been a way to reach a lot of youth who are feeling isolated, but those are teenagers, right? Those are a little bit older. The truth is we haven't come up with a great solution for how to reach those folks who might be technologically disconnected right now. Those kids who are younger, sure, a 15-year-old is probably in control more or less of their viewing, right? They can log on to things on their phone or at the library, and they can get to those things. But there's a deep concern for me for the youngers. I know they're doing a lot of code switching, right? I know that they are at home in protective mode. That's something that is fearful for me. I don't have a good answer. My brain remains curious to figure out how to support those littles and how to get information to them. I'm, in full disclosure, not able to come up with a very good answer right now. Okay, it's time once again for the lightning round. There are three questions. Here we go. True or false? It's enough to have a superintendent of schools who will support the LGBTQ plus community. Michael? False. We need supportive adults at every level of education. Maddie? False. It's a great start. And we need to listen to students who will tell us what they need. Tina? False. I second that um, it's a good start. But that person will very rarely be in contact with their student body. And we need the people who touch those hands and touch those hearts to be informed as well. Second question. True or false? The LGBTQ plus population is a unified block of policy, systems, and cultural change advocacy. Maddie? Uh, uh, False. What's great is that we have a number of organizations, some of which are LGBTQ identified and others that are not, but include LGBTQ work. And we are as diverse as the world is. Tina? I agree. False. There is a lot of bias within our community, particularly regarding the trans community. And I would say that I agree that we are as diverse as the population as a whole in terms of opinions, politics, et cetera. Michael, I was expecting at least one person to say so false. So now it's down to you. (laughs) I was actually going to say so false. (laughs) (laughs) So so very false. We are, just like Maddie and Tina have said, so extremely diverse in terms of political thought and belief. But I do think it's important to note that we do know that there is a way to move towards LGBTQ liberation. There is movement forward, and that does require some solidarity and some oneness and clearness of thought and strategic priorities. And so there is a ton of work being done on that by national, statewide, and local organizations. You may be seeing a pattern by now, but I have one more true or false question. True or false? Once people in power gain an understanding and appreciation for LGBTQ plus individuals, they begin to shift and eventually become supporters and champions for the community. Michael. 
I think I'll say part true and part false. We hope that that's how it works for everyone. And for some people, it does work that way and that they understand the impact and then become deeply connected to the community and want to make a change to our larger society. And for some folks, they can know the impact, like our current Speaker of the House here in Arizona. He has a gay son. He knows his son can be fired for being gay and has been, and he's okay with that. Hmm. Tina? I have to agree. I think it's somewhere in the middle. I do think that you can change some folks' uh, values and actions and consciousness. And I think others, white supremacy is a very strong force. And I'm not confident that in a few months or a few years, you can change the foundational way that all people think. I'm going to say yes for some, not all. Maddie? I'm an anthropologist and my older sister is a therapist. So she takes the individual angle and I take the group or social angle. So I will say that empathy is fantabulously important and I do research on it and I help to generate it all the time for marginalized communities through I hope, ethical kinds of storytelling and solidarity making. On the other hand, I also know that it's okay if people hold different values and have different things in their hearts. What I want them to do is change their behavior when they walk through the schoolhouse door. And so I'm okay with them feeling and thinking whatever they need to, but also conforming and upholding the kinds of expectations and policies and practices that have been given to them to protect and have LGBTQ people thrive. See how much fun the lightning round is? (laughs) That was great. (laughs) Building off that last question. Once you see it, you cannot unsee it. That's something that vitalists love to say all the time. Once you see it, you cannot unsee it. What's the one thing that each of you would want people to see that they can no longer unsee and must act upon when it comes to the LGBTQ plus community? I'm going to start with Maddie. I really do love that phrase. I'm going to push back a little bit on the phrase just for a moment and say that it's unfortunate that people do see horrible things all the time. And right now, in our name and in our state, there are terrible, basically unspeakable things being done to children, whether it's in their home or in a detention center. And many of us are not doing things just because we saw it. And we often have a social amnesia. We forget. So on the one hand, yes, once you see it, you cannot unsee it. But unfortunately, sometimes our our eyes do play tricks on us. So that said, for me, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It is about the incredible strength, resilience, brilliance of students who have taught me so much about why to do this work and how to do this work. So for me, I'm thinking about the positive side. Once you see how powerful and how persuasive, how justice-minded young people are and can be, particularly around LGBTQ issues, you can't unsee that. You want to join them. You want to follow it. It's an enthusiastic kind of group. So I'm going to try to stay on the positive piece for a moment. Perfect. Thank you. Tina, once you see it, you cannot unsee it. That's a really interesting phrase that was actually said to Corey after the principal of my youngest two children's school attended the teacher training around white supremacy and the queer community. And I know I had heard the phrase before, but when she said it back to me, she was saying it as an apology. She had not gone out of her way to see how queer students were being excluded because of simply a lack of thought put into policy. So what she said was, I'm going back to write it now. 
I'm going back to include, of course, she wants every student to be safe, but to her mind, having not said it explicit, having not said that we do not tolerate abuse or harassment or exclusion based on these things. And she talked about gender identity and she talked about gender expression and she talked about ethnicity in a very clear way and said it will not be tolerated. And I felt a shift truly. Now my kids hadn't experienced any of it and I hadn't experienced any of it there. And I felt like that was an extraordinary safe place for my kids, which I don't always feel, but she saw it and couldn't unsee it and made it formal and fast. That phrase has stuck with me and I always am grateful that it was uncomfortable for her and she didn't shy away from it. And she said, I'm going to formalize these thoughts in my head and I require this. So when we say the thing about does the school administrator this, yeah, all those people count, but they have to also put it into action. So having an understanding is one thing. Officially making it policy and saying these are the words and I'm talking about the all of these kids and I mean it is what really has to happen. Saying, well, I feel bad about it. That's nice. Mm. But what's do? And she did it. That meant a lot to me. Nice. Thank you. You guys are so incredibly eloquent. I think I could do this for hours and I hope we can't. But <laughs> Michael, same question to you. Once you see it, you cannot unsee it. What's the one thing you'd want people to see? The one thing is how fierce, fabulous, and free the LGBTQ community can be at our best. There is no one right way to do family, to love, to do gender, to walk down the street. There's no one right way to do anything that is within the human context of being. And at our best, we are truly capable of getting to that point of liberation from all of this, all of these systems of oppression in our lifetimes. The LGBTQ community has shown over and over that we're good at leading the way in that and creating new imagination around what that freedom and liberation can be. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Tina. And thank you, Maddie. Each of you are models of the empathy, passion, dedication, and reflection that's required from all of us in order to support LGBTQ communities' capacity to survive, grow, and thrive. This work is critical for LGBTQ individuals and groups, and also for all of Arizona. As proponents of the concept of targeted universalism have shown repeatedly, It is only when we find solutions for the most vulnerable that we discover deeper root issues and valid solutions from which we all benefit toward improving community health and well-being. Our COVID-19 roundtable will be back next week, including the return of a listener-favorite guest. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. Whether the topic is summer heat and climate change, food, affordable housing, the census, our first responders, or the art and practice of storytelling, The Vitalist Spark has got you covered with great guests, insightful content, and probably one or two bad jokes. There's so much more to explore related to community health and well-being among our more than three dozen episodes so far, including guests from across the state and national experts, too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or, listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. 
In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overdrive, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments, they're all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.